the first time in my life that I fell flat on my face. I mean, I was broken. I actually had really bad depression when I was a resident and a med student um, to the point that I required like psychotherapy and medications like SSRIs. I don't really talk about it very much. I had four friends, I'm not making this up, four friends between the ages of 41 and 45 all have heart attacks when I turn 40. Something I don't think a lot of us do is sit down and figure out what your big priorities, your big rocks, the things that you should care about the most. What people don't see is the hard work that goes into something in order for it to become a successful thing. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here, and you are listening to Stimulus, where we break down strategies and tactics to live and work with intent. If you're coming back, welcome back. For those of you new to the show, great to have you. The voice you just heard in our opener is our guest today, Dr. Salim Rezaei. As a bit of background, Salim is double-boarded in internal medicine and emergency medicine. In addition to working as a physician, Salim runs one of the most popular and visited medical education websites on the planet, Rebel EM, that gets 2 million annual site visits. He's also a podcaster, a social media icon, but none of those reasons are the primary impetus for this episode of Stimulus. I asked Salim to come on the show today because over the years, I've watched him undergo several profound positive transformations. I frankly find him to be an incredibly inspiring person, and one reason is because his values directly align with the purpose of this podcast, which is to live and work with intent. And I wanted to tap into some of that secret sauce. I wanted to learn it for myself, share it with you. And my original idea for this discussion was to talk about Salim's physical transformation. He went from being a big, chubby dude to extremely fit, cut, ripped, healthy, super healthy. You know, how does he maintain that with diet and exercise? But as these conversations usually do, it went into how he approaches work, life, also some of the struggles he had during his training during med school and residency with depression, how he worked through some of that, and then some of his thoughts for others who might be experiencing the same. We touch on the difference between discipline and stubbornness, how Salim decides on his core life principles. There's actually a method to it. Much more in there, as you will hear. So let's get to it. Our discussion with Dr. Salim Rezaei, starting off with the here and now, smack dab in COVID Central. What has been the biggest challenge for you personally during the pandemic? And, and it could be anything. It could be physical, mental, it could be a combination of the two. We were talking earlier, and honestly, there are two things that I find to be the toughest um, from a mental aspect. The first is, and I think this is the hardest part for me at least, is you have these patients coming in and you suspect they have COVID. I mean, they all have COVID when you're in the middle of a surge, which we are right now. You know, with other disease processes, you have these like mental constructs, these little shortcuts, these heuristics that you create that allow you to do all this like kind of thin slicing and kind of, okay, I know what the next step is. I know what the next step is. COVID has like turned that on its head. I just feel like there's no construct in my mind that's going to work for every patient because they all come in with some different baseline comorbid disease or some, you know, 
immune response. It's like phenotypically different than somebody else. And even like in the spectrum of COVID, like the ones that don't require oxygen, the ones that require oxygen, who do you intubate? It's just bizarre to me. Like you'll have this 20 year old that looks worse than an 80 year old. And some days you'll have the 80 year old look worse than the 20 year old. And there's no rhyme or reason to it based on any inflammatory markers, what you're seeing on imaging. And so the hardest part for me is like each patient is like starting from scratch and having to go through that decision tree and that mental fatigue of decision-making. And then at the end of the day, after you've seen 18 to 20 of them, did I make the right decision? Did, did I do the right thing here? Because at the end of the day, I think that's all any of us want to do is the right thing. And this is so much different than, you know, we talk about interruptions in the ER and how that can lead to errors and, and those interruptions lead to mental fatigue. This is a whole nother level whole nother level because we've never seen anything like it. Are you applying some tool or some structure to this to keep sanity, keep mental focus? The answer is no. There's no mental tool you can use because of that variability in what you're seeing, that phenotype of disease in front of you. So it's just, it is like wipe the slate clean and start over. And so what I'm doing between each patient is I'm giving myself just a mental recheck. I'll go back to my little workstation, I'll close my eyes and I'll take a couple deep breaths. I'll clear my head of whatever I just went through. And I'm trying to start with a clean slate with every patient. I want to change gears to something totally different. I want to talk about something that you did that blew my mind when I saw it, right? You used to be a big guy, right? There uh, used to be two Salims. 240 pounds. I think the politically correct way to say it was I was festively plump. <laughs> and then there was probably a year gap but between the time seeing you. And then the next time I saw you, you had shrunk to maybe half the size, maybe uh, maybe that's hyperbole, but look half size, and but super fit and healthy. And also, I mean, you just looked healthier. I felt and, healthier too. And I'm curious, what motivated you to do this? And as I was thinking about that, that question is like, oh, well, you know, I just wanted to make a change, but there had to be a spark, right? There was. Something, something to, to get the kinetic energy moving. Yep. So I, I've always been an athlete my whole life. I, I've played tennis and soccer and uh, track and swimming. I didn't play any of the big sports like football, baseball, um, basketball, but I, I played a lot of other sports and just was always fit my whole life. It was always important. At one point I was doing triathlons uh, when I was in med school and uh, I even kept up with powerlifting when I was a resident. And then Something just happened when I became a junior faculty. It was just really overwhelming. And that aspect of my life just kind of fell off. It just, we all do it. Like you, you forget to set boundaries and, and things kind of fall off. You start living that fast food lifestyle and, uh, you're just working these ridiculous hours. You're just trying to get your head around, like not killing people. And so, yeah, it, it just fell off my radar for four or five years. And I really ballooned up. I, I went up to 240 pounds and, uh, I turned 40. And you're asking for that spark. And, and what the spark was is I had four friends. I'm not making this up. Four friends between the ages of 41 and 45 all have heart attacks when I turned 40. And two of them died from a cardiac arrest. Were these all docs? Uh, no. One of them was a doc. Uh, three of them were just personal friends. The doc was one that died. The other one was a personal friend. And the personal friend hit me really hard. 
And I knew that if I continued with the lifestyle I was living with the 24 7, 365, you know, shift work, working overnights, 200 hours a month, all the meetings, fast food lifestyle, sedentary, I was headed down that path. That's essentially what it boils down to. And, and it really, Rob, when I tell you it scared me, it, it scared me. It, it, I was shook. I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about it. But I, I knew that if I didn't take control and I didn't do something, I was headed for that destiny. At that moment, I was like, that's it. I'm changing. I literally went through my cupboard, my pantry, my refrigerator. You're, you're laughing, but like I threw everything out, like everything. <laughs> I know it's wasteful, but like, I was like, I have got to do something dramatic to get this going again. And little stuff instead of like sitting at my computer, maybe I should go for a hike for 30 minutes. Maybe I should go for a little run instead of watching this movie. Let me pause you there for a second, because, you know, a as you describe, it, it's kind of, oh yeah, I just kind of read a little of this and that and I did this actually, and then, oh, and I went on a walk and I didn't watch this Netflix show. But knowing you, I know that you do things super deliberately. There's always intent. And I'm curious as to what research you did. And if with that, you decided on a plan that's like, hey, here's the diet, here's the exercise, here's the program I want to adopt because it just makes the most sense for me. Honestly, Rob, I just started doing homework, like go on Google and, you know, what are the best books about diet? What are the best books about exercise? What are the best books about mental health? And you just start reading the reviews and you start getting kind of a clear picture. And then as you're listening to the podcast, as you're reading the book, and I'm not, I'm purposely not putting a specific one out there because I think there's lots of good ones. You start picking the pieces that work for you as an individual. And so for me, it was, I have clearly lost boundaries for setting time to exercise. So I deliberately set some exercise time for myself four times a week when I was first starting. Ultimately, that built up to six times a week, but you have to schedule the time. You have to make it a priority. With the diet stuff, I never really read about foods before. I mean, you hear about all these fad diets, right? Like keto and paleo or South Beach. And listen, I, I think those diets are great to get you started, but there's something people forget when you talk about diet and exercise. And that is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And each one of those things is a sprint. And ultimately why people are doing it is because they want to lose weight. And I got to tell you, when I first started, that was my goal was to lose weight. And I only wanted to lose 30 pounds. I ultimately ended up losing 65, but that's not the point. It's like, once you achieve that, then what do you do? What's next? And, and that's where I think picking and choosing the things that work for you that are sustainable for the long haul. And my problem with a lot of these fad diets is that there's truth to all of them when you talk about these fad diets, but they're not sustainable for the rest of your life. I don't see how you can go keto for the entire rest of your life. So what are some of the things I picked up specifically? I've gotten rid of bread, pasta, anything that's just a complex carb that is going to be difficult for my body to process. I've weeded a lot of that stuff out. The no bread, no starches thing. Yeah. Super common, but why, why that? Because, you know, some, some diets, 
like a Mediterranean diet is going to have some starches in it and all that. And that diet's great. I mean, it's not really a fad diet, more of a lifestyle. So I'm curious as to why that became a cornerstone of your diet. It's because it was my vice, eating lots of pastas and breads. And there was one point, we have a, a fast food restaurant here called Taco Cabana. I don't know if it's you're even familiar with it, but it's like a Tex-Mex place. There was a time I would go at midnight through the drive-thru and pick up a bowl of queso, melted queso, and a dozen tortillas. And I literally would like dip them in the queso. I would sit in one sitting, I would finish the dozen and the queso. And so those were like my biggest vices. And so those were the things that I wanted to cut out early and I wanted to do them drastically. I went cold turkey and- But wait, hang on, hang on one sec. What was it that you researched about those things that you said, oh, starches though are problematic for, sure. for me because of reason X? Yeah. The reason X is, is that because they are complex, they require more effort to break down. And we usually eat so much that we end up storing it as fat. That was the ultimate bottom line is that we eat in such large portion sizes in the United States that we eat in surplus. And that surplus, what doesn't get used, I wish we just kind of pooped it out, but that's not how it works. Your body stores it as fat so that you can use it at a later time, just from an evolutionary standpoint. When you scheduled and schedule your exercise, how do you do it and how do you defend it? What I'm doing today is different than what I when I first started. When I first started, I was just kind of on my own journey. I didn't really have a buddy system. I didn't have somebody I was working out with. I just kind of scheduled it. And you know, one of the problems as a ER physician is we don't have banker's hours Monday through Friday, eight to five. And so I would look the week before and I would see what my schedule is for the next week. And I would purposely and deliberately schedule four times for myself that I was going to work out no matter what. If anybody knows me, they know I'm a very stubborn person. And when I set my mind to things, I tend not to let it fall off. And so I was my own gut check. Um, and I realized not everybody can do that. And it's, it's hard. Get a buddy system, work out with somebody, have somebody keep you accountable. There's lots of ways to like keep yourself accountable for it. I, but I think the first step is to make the time and schedule it because our lives are chaotic and we don't have like a, oh, I can go for boot camp at six o'clock in the morning. Sometimes I'm at work at six o'clock in the morning. So I think it's just looking ahead and prioritizing it. Would you put it on your calendar? Okay, here's my block for exercise. I got to account for warm up, cool down. I got to account for all these things. And, and, and it was literally blocked out. It was literally blocked out on my calendar. I always worked out for an hour. So I would give myself two hours. So my gym went before, this is all before COVID. So my gym is about 10, 15 minutes away from my house. So I would drive 10 to 15 minutes. I would do my stretch. I would do 45 minutes of cardio and then 15 minutes of supersets, strength training, different things every day. And then I would do a cool off and then shower up and come home. So I would block literally on my calendar. It would say workout day. And those two hours were blocked off. With your diet now, say you're not working. Take me through the day of, of what your diet looks like now. So interestingly, I've added intermittent fasting to my lifestyle. And part of the reason for that was in addition to having a crazy schedule with work, I also had to travel a bunch for conferences. And when you can't prepare your own food, 
how do you keep track of your caloric intake and what they're actually putting in the food? Because you're obviously eating out at that point. There's there's no other option, really. I guess you could go to the grocery store, but how realistic is that? And what do you cook with <laughs> when you're in a hotel? So I added this intermittent fasting and I, I thought it was a bit extreme, but I figured I would try it. It's, you know what? Let's try it. So I my first conference, this was about a couple years ago. I decided I'm just not going to eat during the day. I won't eat from midnight till 6 p.m. And then if I was going to eat anything, I would eat between 6 p.m. and midnight. So it's 18 off and six on. Let me pause you for one sec. What was it that you read about intermittent fasting that convinced you that that was the way to go? It was a cultural thing. It had nothing to do with anything specific about intermittent fasting. And the reason is I'm Middle Eastern and my parents grew up in Iran And I remember when I was a kid, there was a month of the year where they would practice Ramadan and they would not eat during the day and they could only eat at night. I always felt left out as a Iranian male that was born in the US. I I wanted to do it because my dad was doing it and I never got that chance to do it. And so then I started reading about it and uh, some of the beginnings of it coming from some of the Middle Eastern cultures. And I was like, this is my chance. This is my chance to start doing that. (laughs) And so that's, I'm just being honest with you. There was no like specific thing. It was just, it was from a cultural standpoint. I was like, this is my chance to actually do something like Ramadan. Okay. What if you are working a night shift and most of your sleep window is also your eating window? That's a great question. So my shifts, we have eights, nines, tens, and twelves hours for our shifts. And so the 12 hours are are no problem because I'll just food prep and take some Tupperware with me. So the 6P to, to 6A, let's say. Some of the evening shifts that are eight or nine hours, I'll food prep and I will take Tupperware with me. And then for the day shifts, I just don't eat. And I got to tell you, like when I first started doing it, it was tough, man. Your body, the body is such an amazing thing. It adapts quickly. And the first week I was like, man, I'm starving. I don't know how the hell they do this for an entire month. But slowly but surely, the chemicals in your head they get used to it. They're just like, we're just not going to eat for 18 hours a day. And now it's like, I don't even think about it. It's like just a a non-issue. But yeah, for shift, I'll prepare food and take it in Tupperware. And I usually mass produce. So one of my favorite things to cook is uh, like a veggie medley where I'll have bell peppers and mushrooms and onions and Brussels sprouts and artichoke, and I'll, I'll dice them all up. And uh, I'll kind of, with some virgin olive oil, I'll kind of prepare that in a pot. It's just like this huge, like massive pot. And it's clearly way more than what anybody needs for one sitting. And then I'll divide it up into Tupperware. And uh, I'll put that stuff in, some of it in the freezer and some of it in the fridge. And so that's kind of like my snack food. So like if I start getting hungry and there's just no meals or I haven't, you know, thought ahead to prepare, that's what I'll munch on. And it's great. It's high in fiber. It doesn't have all the complex carbs. It has everything that you need. You were saying before that you're stubborn. And I know a lot of people who are stubborn, but not disciplined. And this takes discipline. And I I heard this quote yesterday by a famous boxer. And he said, discipline is doing the things you hate to do with the energy of things you love to do. And and as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking that stubbornness is not going to fly. It's got to be discipline. And so are you disciplined by nature or is it something that you had to develop? 
it's something I had to develop, but it started with stubbornness. (laughs) 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 I I don't know how else to tell you. Um, You're right. You're right. For sustainability, you know, by your seventh or eighth day of waking up to go work out, can I cuss on this, by the way? Yeah, you can. We put the E. We put the E on there. It fucking sucks, man. It is a daily grind. And I'm going to take a step back here. So, yes, it's discipline. Have you ever read the book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson? I've read parts of it. Okay. So, he talks about this concept of figuring out what your priorities are in life. I think Amal Matu in Emergency Medicine talks about the big rocks in your life as your priorities. And everything else is kind of comes secondary and tertiary and all that sort of stuff. And so the point I'm getting at when it comes to discipline is something I don't think a lot of us do is sit down and figure out what your big priorities, your big rocks, the things that you should care about the most. And that is the things that you need to focus on, the things you need to work on, and the things that you eventually become disciplined on. And it's not something that happens overnight. It's uh, this concept of aggregation of marginal gains. Get 1% better every day. 1% better every day. You know, 365 days of 1% adds up really quickly. And you look back and you're just like, holy shit, I just did a lot of 1%. I made some big drastic changes. Like you were saying, you hadn't seen me in a year, for example. And so I think that's the number one step when it comes to discipline is figure out what your priorities are. And for me, obviously staying healthy is one of them. It's It's been one of them for the last three years. And it starts by being stubborn. It starts by scheduling time and setting those boundaries for yourself. But what becomes fascinating is as you start talking to more people, as you start reading more things, as you start hearing more podcasts, you start picking and choosing all these little things and it starts to add layers and you can feel that growth, that internal growth. And can I tell you that when that starts to happen and that light bulb clicks and all the gears are going, it becomes discipline. It becomes exciting. It becomes fun. The thing that you despise, the thing you didn't set time for, now all of a sudden has all these layers and taken on a life of its own. You're talking about discipline versus stubbornness. It's baby steps, man. It, it doesn't, it's not like all of a sudden the switch flipped and now I'm healthy. It took time. Oh, I love it. The accumulation of marginal gains is is so hard. It, it's, I think it's hard for you know how society runs right now, right? To slow down. And I think it's also hard for the group that you and I grew up with, which is emergency docs, which are like, fix it now, or, you know, someone else fix it later. Boom, next, boom, next, boom, next. What And it's just, it's a very kind of quick turnaround, instant gratification or instant not gratification mindset. It's hard to pull back and say, oh, we're in for the long haul because I think that that personality type doesn't gravitate towards emergency medicine, right? You know, somebody's primary care doctor is like, okay, let's look at your 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease. And let's just get, let's get a plan that's going to help you with that versus if you're here for two hours, that's probably too long. You hit a, a really good point there about immediate satisfaction. Everything around us is built that way. Even like Twitter and Facebook, like getting likes and hearts and retweets and it's all just like instant gratification, like kind of lifestyle. It's just the world we live in. Let me stop you for a second. L- listeners, for those of you who have followed me for a while, know that I revile Twitter. 
and most social media. I'll put stuff on there just to let you know that things have posted. One of the people that I repeatedly look at is Salim stuff. Follow Salim on Twitter. He's got like 80 million followers. I don't know. It makes these beautiful infographics of stuff. He does it right. He does Twitter right. Doesn't get into Twitter wars. He's not nasty. He's always uplifting. When it comes to social media, you complete me, but that's not saying much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think when you're using these tools, again, you're saying I'm so deliberate and and you're right. I am. I, I really like like to think things through, but a tool is only as good as the person who uses it. When you think about some of these social media platforms, I'll come back to the instant gratification thing. Okay. Okay. You have to decide how you want to use it. And for me, the way I want to use it is to get good information out, but also learn good information. I try and stay out of politics and and religion and ethnicities and Look, I'll stand up for things that you need to stand up for, you know, the the George Floyd incident and a lot of the things that have been kind of going around on social media, very unfortunate. And I think it's important that we each, you know, speak out and uh, try and push for change. So don't get me wrong. I think that those can also be used in that way. But when it starts becoming a political propaganda or a visceral emotional response I just don't find those platforms very productive. It just turns into like a, a piss fest and, and nobody ever wins. In the early days of Twitter, I was on it a lot and I, I didn't post a ton as I still, still don't, but I was there to see what other people were posting. It was a very active medical education community and it was, it was kind of easy to, to sort the wheat from the chaff because there were not a ton of people on it. There were some yeah. people on it, but now I can't do it. It's too overwhelming. And uh, you know, when 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 COVID was ascendant back on and following some people and seeing what was what, but like what what is a sane way to do this to, you know, so like, okay, I want to, I want to learn some more information. I want to find out about things that I wouldn't even have thought of. If you've followed like a hundred people, the feed just becomes too much. I think you just have to be selective about who and what you follow. And uh, it, I look, I actually look at people's feeds and see what they're publishing, what they're putting out. And if it's just a bunch of personal whatever, or this is what I'm eating today, or I'm exercising and doing look this. Look at me. Look yeah, at look me. at me. Look at, pay attention I, to me, people. I, I don't follow you. I don't mean that offensively. It's just, there's some people that put out some really good stuff. Yeah. And uh, when you look at their feed and you see like, it's constantly like, boom, that's a gem. That's a gem. That's a gem. That's the person I want to follow. Coming back to instant gratification, that's what we all want. So you want to follow everything because you don't want to miss anything. But I think it's important that what people don't see is the hard work that goes into something in order for it to become a successful thing. So for example, ERCast and uh, Stimulus, your two podcasts, bro, how many years did you put into that? How much? How many hours of your life did you spend trying to master that craft? It was five years before I did my first podcast, doing it with my brother and getting tutelage under him on how to podcast, how to how to read, how to speak extemporaneously. Probably I've been now doing medical podcasting and for 10 years, uh, 10,000 hours. Okay. And then how long did it take when you started ERCast and now Stimulus before you started getting some type of traction, some kind of following, how many more years did it take? Um, well, 
ERK, ERK, uh, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> this is, um, I, I'm a I bad just changed exa- roles. Now I'm interviewing you, but okay. I'll, I'll tell I'm, you why I'm asking these questions. I, I'm a bad, I'm a bad example for this because when I started ERCast, it was early on in podcasting and really early on in medical podcasting. And my brother and I were, were doing a totally other, another show. It was not medically related, but we talked about ERCast on it. And so it went to number one on Apple Podcasts, Got the it. first episode, just because he very graciously launched that show. And then Stimulus, I talked about on ERCast. And so it had, uh, you know, it had a good listenership right away. Now it is still gaining traction because it's new, but I had good timing when I started those things. But the point is you still put 10,000 hours of work into, you know, before it it took off and became a thing, right? Well, doing it well, isn't like just, oh, I did did it well. It's just, you have to, it's a continual process. Do you you ever go back and listen to some of your early shows? Dude, I listened to shows from a couple months ago and they're they're horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I do the same thing on my podcast. It's terrible. (laughs) But again, coming back to like instant gratification, I think- there's a great quote and I forget who says it, but it says, work hard in silence and let your success speak for itself. And I really value that quote because I think that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to work hard behind the scenes. I want to grind it out. I want to figure it out. I want to be deliberate. I want to be calculated in the way I do it, but with a good intention. And any success that Rebel EM has had, Rebel Cast has had, anything that I've left my mark on isn't about me at the end of the day. It's about the success of that thing. And you know better than me, it takes more than one person to make something successful. It's always a team effort. And there's all those unsung heroes that don't get their names out and don't get to you know say those things. And I always try and remember that. And the second quote I want to just mention is, how does it go? It goes, be humble in victory and gracious in defeat. And I think that is two ends of the spectrum of being a human being. If you can master both ends of that spectrum and find that balance, you end up becoming just a better human being as it goes. And I think we all get lost in this, my behind the scenes compared to your social media feed and the instant gratification. And I think we need to just really get away from that. I, I think that's actually really harmful. All your quotes and talking about this stuff makes me think about what I think is one of the most beautiful observations of the 20th century. And now some people don't agree with this and some do, but I, I tell you, it is like a core value. Teddy Roosevelt said this. Now, might not agree with his politics, but he was very pithy. He said that comparison is the thief of joy. When you look and see what the Johnsons have and, and uh, you know, what this person's doing and that person's doing, it's like, oh, I, I'm, I'm not this. And when your value is set by the comparison to someone else or someone else has, that is the thief of joy. That's, that's the opposite of gratitude. When I was younger, I used to compare myself to others quite a bit. And uh, especially in medical school, man, and residency, and it, it broke me. I mean, I was broken. I actually had really bad depression when I was a resident and a med student um, to the point that I required like psychotherapy and medications like SSRIs. I don't really talk about it very much, but I don't mind talking about it. 
it broke me. And, and just reflecting back to who I am today uh, compared to then, I think the big thing is, is I've just learned not to compare myself to others. I, I'm going to just be me. And all I can do is be the best version of me. And so if I can be better than I was yesterday, then that's a successful day. Um, and I could care less like what somebody else looks like or what somebody else says. I pay attention. I just don't compare myself to them. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. We all have different traumas. We all have baggage, man. And I think when you start comparing yourself to these people's like social media streams, you're just seeing like, I mean, who's going to put a bad picture of themselves up on their own social media stream, right? You're just seeing the best version of that person. Let me pause you for a second there. And if you feel comfortable. Sure, of course. The depression in residency, this really strikes home for me as well, which we can get to in a moment. But I'm curious as to what you think was the root cause of that and what that looked like. It was it was multifactorial as as most things that deal with emotions are. You know, I've lived in Texas my whole life. I've lived in San Antonio. I went to college in San Antonio. I went to med school at uh, Texas A&M, which is a two-hour drive from San Antonio. And then in residency, I flew out to North Carolina. So it was the first time I was away from my family and my friends. That was really hard. I, I, I felt lonely. I missed that support system and having those people around me. And then the second thing was there were lots of smart people in my residency class. I mean, people are just... I, I often joke that if I applied to med school and residency today, I probably wouldn't get in. Um, some of these candidates are just unbelievable. And I just, I felt like I wasn't good enough. Like, you know, when you're, when you're in high school and, and college, you're, you're, if you're going to med school, you're usually like the top of your class. And so you're used to that. Then all of a sudden you get to this new higher level and it redistributes itself and you're no longer in the top of your class. You're like at the bottom of your class. And that's a tough pill to swallow. And then you don't have your family and your support network around you. And you see how somebody else is doing something and you hate yourself for not being able to do it that way. And it just starts to build up. And then my residency was funny because I went from having no duty hours to having duty hours. And the no duty hours, man, I I would pull call for 36, 40 hours uh, when I was doing my internal medicine portion of it. I did EMIM. So I did a five-year residency. And man, that lack of sleep and the just getting beaten down on trauma service and it just, it added up and eventually something just broke inside me. And I just was sad. I remember there were nights I would cry myself to sleep and I'm not a crier, bro. I I work out, you know, like I'm a tough guy. Like I, (laughs) but I, I literally would cry myself to sleep. And, and then ultimately that started leading to really bad insomnia, um, where I just wasn't able to sleep anymore. And I would go like two, three days without sleep. And I knew something was wrong. Something was wrong. And so I went and sought care and I never suicidal, never thought about hurting myself, but I just wasn't right. Ultimately, after talking to the psychotherapist, we we both agreed that I, I was suffering from pretty bad depression. I think that a lot of healthcare providers see it as a sign of weakness to seek mental health care. And, and I think it's really normalized now on the large scale, but I think on the small scale that mental illness still has that stigma. It's okay to have a medical illness, that's legit, but a mental illness, that is still, that's on you. That's on you. And I'm curious, 
when you decided to do that, was it hard to make ha- make that decision that I need to I need to go get help? It, it was really hard because you know at that time, um, so residency was two thousand five to two thousand ten. That stigma was still there. To go talk to my program director and tell them that I, I, there's a problem, there's something that's not right, and then to go seek help, it, it was really hard. It was the first time in my life that I fell flat on my face because I, I was always successful at sports. I was always successful in school. Everything I, I worked at, I was always successful. This is the first time that I wasn't. That was a tough pill to swallow. What did you learn in psychotherapy or in, in therapy that you were able to use to turn things around in residency and that you still carry with you? Talking about things and not internalizing is one of the biggest ones. I think the reason I bottled things up is because I was growing up, I was always told that don't be a complainer and just work hard and suck it up. And uh, I just didn't talk about stuff because it was kind of a sign of weakness. But it turns out when you bottle things up and you don't process and you don't have discussions about it, it adds up. When you're not resting on top of it, it really starts to hit you. And so that's one of the biggest like takeaways is just, it's okay to talk about it and you should talk about it. It's not a sign of weakness. And and what you find, what's fascinating is as you talk about it, people start coming out of the woodworks. Like, yeah, me too, man. I, I did too. I've never really talked about it. And and then you guys start like trading secrets and stories and it, it just becomes, it takes on a life of its own. And so I think that was the number one thing. The second thing was lifestyle choices in terms of sleep hygiene, how I was putting myself to sleep. And there was a time in my life that I drank pretty heavily, like alcohol. I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic, but I drank a lot. And we know that if you drink a lot of alcohol and you go to sleep, you just don't get as restful as sleep. And it's a depressant on top of it. So um, that was the second thing, which is unique and personal to me. Not everybody has that issue. And then the final thing I would say is the comparing myself to others. And that was really tough because it's one thing to say it, but how do you change your mindset? Like, how do you stop comparing yourself to others? It's not like you just flip a switch and you now you're not comparing yourself to other people, but that's what I was doing. And I was beating myself up. Like I was bottom quarter of my class and that was a tough pill to swallow. And what I found was that by working hard, just studying more, reading more chapters, sticking around and and picking like experts' brains, all of a sudden, not comparing myself to others didn't matter anymore. I, I just wanted to learn more. And as I started to learn more, I started getting better and I started getting smarter. And I actually, as a side effect of that, started moving up in my class. It was kind of like not something I intentionally did. It's just the way I started and and it led to that. And so now that's kind of my mindset is just work hard, learn as much as you can about whatever it is that you're trying to get better at. You don't have to be the best at it, but knowledge is power. Like you want to just spend time and pick people's minds and, and read books and listen to podcasts. All this information is out there. You just got to make the time to learn about it. And then as you start working at things, you stop comparing because I no longer care if you can run faster than me, Rob. All I care about is that I'm making improvements in myself because of some new little thing or a new song I added to my power track. It just takes time. 
But those were the three biggest things I, I took away. I probably stole the story a couple times in various venues that, um, you know, I had a lot of ego associated with my image of myself as a doctor and that, you know, I was, as, as you said, you know, you can't get filtered down like you're the top, you're the top, you're the top. And I wanted to be the top guy at the top place. And I was one of the chief residents at Denver General is like the top, top, top. And then I took the job that was like the best job. And I was like, I had to be the best guy at the best place, best guy, best place. And this place thought of itself as the best place. It was such, I'm like shaking now, just thinking about it. And it was such a pressure cooker. And I was like, I'm the best. I can take this. I'm the best. I can take this. And I would just go to work, like feeling stressed. And I can remember I was stuck in traffic one time getting to work. It's like, okay, you're stuck in traffic. You have no control over that. Zero. I had this, I don't think I've ever told this story. I had this, this well of just rage, rage. And I, I was in my car by myself. So listen to Springsteen, which I often did on the way to work. I screamed as loud as I could. I was had a hoarse voice after that. Probably had like a vocal cord hemorrhage or something, man. And it's just, where is that coming from? Where is that coming from? And it's like, you know, I'm not the best guy at the best place. Who I am is enough. And this place is not the best place for me clearly it's not the best place for me. And you know what? I don't have to be at the place at the flagship. I I'm going to be better suited to this other little hospital. I just discovered it was this, you know, little hospital in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, greatest place I ever worked. I went to, you know, went from the, the flagship hospital of this health system that owns the West coast to this teeny tiny little, you know, private hospital in rural hospital. And it saved my career. I felt like it saved me as a person when I admitted that I was, I, I, let's say I was defeated by this place, you know, it was like when someone is a fighter, sometimes you lose fights. And it's like, if you can't admit that you lost that fight, you're never going to learn. And so letting go of that ego image of I'm the best guy, the best place that I am who I am. And that's, that's enough. And I got to find the right place for me. That was one of the turning points in my life. And being the best guy by default, has you comparing yourself to others. And that flames the worst aspects of ego and insecurity. I mean, I, I couldn't say it any better. I, you know, my issue with the word defeat, and I guess it's okay. I, I just, the words we use matter, you know? And, yeah. and yeah. when I think of defeat, I think of giving up. And I don't think I've ever given up. I, I think... I've chosen to change direction. I, I've chosen to learn from whatever it was. Like you said, there's all these like little battles we're fighting, right? And you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. It doesn't mean defeat. It's defeat if you give up. But if you actually learn something from it and something better comes of that, you're not really defeated. Like for example, in your story of I wanted to be the best guy at the best hospital system, I would argue that you were the winner. And you weren't defeated because the lessons that you learned from that took you to a job that you actually enjoyed and saved your career and changed you as a person. And so how can you take that loss as a defeat when something so great came out of it? If you can embrace failure equally as you embrace success, it doesn't feel as good as success, doesn't get dopamine going like success does, but boy, do you learn. To add one more thing about embracing defeat and failure, 
whichever word you want to use. I, I don't know where we where we ended on that, but but the point is is that if you think back to the things that you value the most in life, it wasn't the things that you were successful at right away. It was the things that you struggled with, that you failed at, that you had to work at. And because of that work, it added value to that thing. I want to finish up asking about something that you had mentioned a little while ago, and that was your rocks or your core principles are sitting down and really deciding on what are the things that are the priority and everything else is going to come after that, really. I'm curious as to what yours were and how did you decide that those were the things? Every December, I actually don't do any work on Rebel EM. I use that month to really sit down and look over the year. I have a like a moleskin notebook that I take notes in. Um, and I, I go back through that moleskin and just kind of think about the year and things that have happened, uh, things I was happy with, things I was disappointed with. And and I really sit down and just and start to really kind of brainstorm. So I, I use December. It's not like a one-day thing. It's like I use the whole month. Like I, I purposely have times that I sit down and just think about it. And I come up with a list of things. Usually it's about five to 10 that are potential candidates for being my priorities. And uh, I whittle it down to three. And I guess I could do four. I guess I could do five. But it, it starts becoming a bit like the more cognitive load you add to yourself, the less likely you are to keep it going for the year. So I, I just use the number three for no other reason than it's just a nice number. So for the last three years, the not the top one, but one of my top three is diet and fitness. It, it has become so important to me that it is always one of my priorities and I make sure that I'm scheduling time for it. No matter how busy I'm getting, no matter what's going on in my life, that is a, a staple. The second is spending time with family and friends. I think oftentimes we get so lost in work and all these conferences and then all these like foam podcasts and things that we're doing that it's like there's only so many hours in the day and, and we forget about the ones that we love. And so I think making time for the ones we love should also be a priority, if not the top priority, because without them, none of us would be who we are. The second or third one, where whichever order it ends up in, is I like to read a book every month. And it's not a fiction book. It's not a medical book. It's just to learn about something new. And I started doing that a few years ago. So here's a secret. I used to hate speaking. Public speaking, I was horrified. Could not do it. Uh, didn't like it. And just sweaty palms. Couldn't think on the go. Hate, hated doing it. And, and listeners who don't know Salim, he now runs his own conference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then one of the books I read was Presentation Zen by Gar Reynolds. And it completely revamped my mindset on presentation. I, I was asking to help me out with some slides uh, a couple months ago. Is that is that that book that you got? All, you had these beautiful ideas of how to craft so, a slide. So Presentation Zen was not the book I got it from. He has a second book called Presentation Zen Slide Design. Okay. And so some of the concepts we were talking about came from the second book. Um, about how to kind of model your slides and your infographics to be aesthetically pleasing. The point is, though, is that I don't think I would have ever gotten into giving talks and lectures if I wouldn't have read that book. 
And so this is just the power of there's lots of smart people out there that have a lot of amazing information and you can learn a ton and you don't have to read a book. I, to me, I just, there's something about having a paper book in my hand and, and just reading it, but they make them all in audio books. Now you can listen to them while you go on a walk. So, you know, that's the, that's the third thing is, is just, I, I try and learn something new every month. And I don't really have a rhyme or reason. Somebody will just say, hey, this is a good book and or no, this is a good book. And I just add them to a list. New month, new book. Okay. What is the most unexpected book in the last year that people are like, well, didn't see that one. Because there's all there's called like kind of like the pop psychology books, you know, like the power of yeah. blah, 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 blah. Can I tell you the one that uh, to me was like kind of like just out there? I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have a girlfriend. Like I've just, I'm a single guy. And, uh, I read a book called the, uh, the five love languages. Have you heard of this book? I haven't. So it's fascinating. There's actually a test that you can take. And I've often wondered like why I'm not in a relationship and why I'm not married. And, you know, we can get deeper into that, but that's not the point. The point is, is that I'm reading a book called The Five Love Languages. Why am I reading a book called The Five Love Languages when I'm not even in a relationship? And I got to tell you, man, I learned a ton just reflecting back on past relationships that didn't work, mistakes that I made. It was really fascinating how people express their love to others. And there's five of them. And I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. Um, but they actually have a quiz. You can just pull it up. It's like the five love languages quiz. And it tells you what type of love language you speak and what type of love language you appreciate. And for me, interestingly, it was quality time. Quality time is the way I express love and quality time is the way that I appreciate love. And so there's there's five languages out there. And it, it really like when you really sit down and think about it, you could extrapolate that to even friendships. I would say that's probably the craziest thing. I, I know you were looking for something like uh, learning to, I don't know, like build something crazy, but no, I, there's nothing like that. That was probably the craziest book. I had no expectation for it. I wanted to give you the freedom to, uh, you know, say whatever you wanted to say. Yeah, how, how to be a porn star or something like that is the, I don't even know if that's a book, but. <laughs> I'm just, you know, it's probably an entire industry of books. <laughs> Sal, thank you so much for taking the time and your candor is great talking to you. Hey man, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Always fun chatting. And that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Stimulus. Thank you so much, Salim Rezaei, for joining us today. And thank you for tuning in. You can check out complete show notes, videos, much more at our website, stimuluspodcast.com. If you subscribe to this show in iTunes, next time you get there, throw down a rating. Helps keep the ship afloat and the wind in the sail, so to speak. And if you don't subscribe to the show anywhere, well, you can do it in any podcatcher you desire. Until next time, don't just be good. Be great every day. <laughs>